This season of Radio Play Collab received funding from a Spokane Arts Grant Award. For more information on Saga, visit spokanearts.org. Support for Radio Play Collab also comes from The Inlander, a local, independent weekly newspaper since 1993. New issues are out every Thursday and available regionally. The Inlander is also updated daily on inlander.com. This is Radio Play Collab, a creative partnership between Spokane Public Radio, Purple Crayon Pictures, and Spokane Playwrights Laboratory. On this episode, we present the one-act play, Dead Mouse on Your Doorstep. It was directed by Juan A. Moss and features David Bullis, Sean Gardner, and Kim Berg in a story about an activist who fights for causes he believes in, even if that cause happens to be his cat's diet. I'm your host, E.J. Ionelli, and be sure to stay tuned after the play for my interview with the playwright, Malcolm Pellis. And now, Dead Mouse on Your Doorstep. Welcome to Pete's Pet Supplies. Hello. What kind of cat do you have there, sir? Oh, I don't really know. I guess you'd call him a domestic cat. Ooh, a moggy. You know, I was at a Black Lives Matters march, spotted him through the window of a rescue, saw those piercing progressive eyes, and I adopted him right on the spot. Been my protest pal ever since. Isn't that right, Bob Marley? Bob Marley? Uh, Bob Marley, that, that's my cat's name. Irie. How may I help you and Mr. Marley today? I'm looking for vegetarian cat food. You mean like cat food without meat? Exactly. Uh, no chicken, no lamb, no turkey giblets, no ocean fish. No? No catfish scales, no chicken beaks, no cow tongues. No? No beef entrails with or without broth, no pork liver. No, no meat whatsoever. Sir, we don't sell cat food without meat. I've never heard of a cat that doesn't eat meat. Well, my cat's a vegetarian. Weaned him off milk as a kitten. Been making his food ever since, and I was hoping a that you A cat that doesn't eat meat doesn't sound so healthy. They're natural carnivores. I think I know my own cat. And a plant-based diet seems perfectly healthy to me. He eats tofu. Beans and rice, and the occasional... I suppose I... you're a vegetarian, too? Of course. Eating meat is murder. That's something Bob Marley and I strongly believe. But felines have to have meat. If he doesn't get meat from you, his body will tell him to get it elsewhere. Your cat's gonna bring a dead mouse to your doorstep. Obviously, you don't know my cat. Of course, he likes meat. I have some dry food samples here. Look, I'll show you. You want some chicken cat chow, Mr. Marley? Yum, yum, yum. Get away from him. He's not interested. Is there someone else I can talk to? The owner's over there. Are you the owner? Yeah, that's me. I'm Pete. 
Well, I need some vegetarian cat food. Veggie cat food? Sir, you want your cat to bring a dead mouse to your doorstep? No, no, I mean, he wouldn't do that. He's a proud abolitionist. An abolitionist? Of what? Flesh. Look, do you have vegetarian cat food or not? No, we don't carry nothing like that. Well, can you order it for me? You serious? <laughs> this isn't a joke, is it? Because I've never heard of veggie cat food. Well, just because you haven't heard of it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Someone's got to make this stuff. Do you think I'm the only person in the world with a vegetarian cat? You're the only one here with one. Listen, I don't think I can help you. You can't help me? But the sign over the entrance says, we serve all your pet needs. And? You aren't serving my pet's needs. Sir, I think the best thing for you is to try another store. If you'd excuse me, I have to put out stock on the floor. So, so, so that's it? Have a nice day. Well, well, this is injustice. A damn injustice. Discrimination. Anti-vegetarian discrimination. People have boycotted over less offenses. Wait, what? And I know something about boycotts, believe me. I was down in Montgomery in 54. Was in California with Cesar Chavez for the great boycotts in the 70s. Are you threatening me? Huh? Are you threatening me? I, I was just pointing out how unfair this is. Because if you even think about boycotting me, I'll pry open your yapper, throw my hand down your throat, and jerk out that yellow belly of yours. You, you, you can't talk to me. I did. Like... Don't. What are you going to do? Don't what are you going to do? Boycott. Yeah, boycott. With a picket line out front. That's right. Yeah, they thought the boycott on Coca-Cola was big and the Walmart boycott was monumental. <laughs> they, they ain't seen nothing yet. I'm going to bring Pete's pet supplies to its knees. To its knees. It's time to fight. Animal rights. It's time to fight. Animal rights. No compassion. No peace. No compassion. No peace. It's not food. It's violence. They still out there? Uh-huh. It's seven of them now. The old man and the cat, three gray panthers from the senior center, and two other gentlemen that may or may not be unhoused. No compassion. Call the police. It's violence. All right, get in the jail cell, Pops. Walk. Oh, you want to play hardball? You haven't seen hardball yet, pig. You don't know who you're messing with. In 68, I was with the Chicago 8. It was almost the Chicago Nine. <laughs> Bob Marley, that you in the other cell? They're just trying to divide and conquer us. It's the oldest trick in the book. <laughs> Stay strong.
Got a new roomie, Pops. Hey, were you just talking to someone? Well, I was talking to Bob Marley. What, Elvis and Tupac were busy? No. Bob Marley's my cat. He's in the next cell. What y'all in for? The constitutional right to assemble and the freedom of speech. They got me on constitutional rights, too. The right to pursue happiness. Drinking Jack Daniels makes me happy, and I was pursuing it in a public park. <laughs> you been to jail before? Mm-hmm. I can tell. Yeah, you one of them old, old school G's. Used to rep for Al Capone with a tummy gun and whatnot, right? <laughs> hey, I was just joking. A favorite? You must got a favorite place you've been locked up. Well, I wouldn't call it a favorite, but in 63, I was jailed in Birmingham, and that experience changed me forever. Birmingham in 1963? Yes. You know, with the fire hoses, the dogs, Bull Connor. Oh, man. Eyes on the prize. I've seen that movie. Wait. You weren't cellmates with MLK, were you? Among others, yes. Hear that? Yeah. Looks like we got some rodent friends. Damn cops. First they work a brother over pretty good in the squad car. Now I gotta deal with nasty rats. Maybe we should have a hunger strike to protest, right? Hey, th th that's a great idea. Hey, I was just joking. Well, how do you expect things to change if you don't stand up for yourself? Frederick Douglass said... If there is no struggle, there is no progress. You must got me confused for Gandhi. No, no, it's not just the Mahatma Gandhis of the world that make a difference. It's regular folk like you and me. See, it starts off with some pigs working you over. And before you know it, they're shooting you in the back like they did George Jackson. Oh, for real? They shot George Jackson? Point blank in his cell. Man. Life's funny. You can grow up on top of the world in one of the biggest bands in history, then end up dying on the cold, hard floor of a prison cell. Meanwhile, your baby brother goes on to become the freaking king of pop. King, king of pop? No, Michael. Damn, how ancient is you? Don't even know the Jackson Five? There was Michael, Tito, Jermaine, George. There was no George in the Jackson Five. No. Oh. George Jackson was a political prisoner in Soledad. Oh, my bad. But you know, you could send a message with a hunger strike. Just think, you'd be a hero. A hero? Might even get your name in the paper. Yeah? Never had my name in the paper before. For nothing good, anyway. Think they'll take my picture? Maybe. That'd be crazy. Yeah. My pretty mug in the Spokesman Review. At least the Valley News Herald, right? Hmm. Look at your cat. He's got one of those rascals in his mouth. Bob Marley, what are you doing? Stop it. What do you mean, stop? There you go. Fight the power. Eat that rat. Bob Marley, don't give in. That's what they want you to do. Tear that thing up, bro. That's what they get for letting those rats in here. Damn. That's gangster. Is that a... Bob Marley, did 
you just spit a rat tail into our cell? I, I think I'm going to be sick. Congratulations, you got a regular Malcolm X in the fam. Guess the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. What your cat should do is take a bite out of one of those popo mofos. Hey, Pops, your bill's been paid. Your cat's too. Here he is. Bob Marley, look at you. You have rodent blood all over your face. No, no, don't speak to me. When we get home, it's re-education for you. This way, Pops. I don't want to hear about it. There's no excuse. You broke my heart, Bob Marley. Frederick Douglass would roll over in his grave if he saw that blood on your face like that. I can't believe what you're doing to me. Man. A vegetarian cat. <laughs> it's like my grandma used to say. Even though they're both nuts, you can't turn a walnut into a peanut no matter how much you honey roast it. <laughs> Dead Mouse on Your Doorstep. That featured David Bullis playing Pete and the Cop, Sean Gardner as the store clerk and Henry, and Kim Berg as Irv the Activist. This Radio Play collab production was directed by Juan A. Moss, and the sound designer was Dusty Birch. Dead Mouse on Your Doorstep was written by Malcolm Pellis. Malcolm also happened to direct the recent production of Antoinette Nwandu's Passover at Stage Left Theatre. That production took several top awards at the recent national competition of the American Association of Community Theaters, or ACT for short. When I spoke with Malcolm recently, I asked him why he felt that play did so well at the national level. Well, I think it's just the collection of talent, you know, my talent, the ensemble cast talent, lighting design set, just kind of came together in a real special way. And so Stage Left had a production, had a run of this, about a year ago, and we've been working on this play on and off for about a year, and so just the chemistry uh, has developed over that year in a really powerful way, and I think it created a show that was really undeniable. And what are some of the parameters that you have to adhere to? Because I remember, I think it was Bug that oh, right. was disqualified because they went eight seconds over in the setup. So what are the parameters that this has to adhere to? Well, it's interesting you mentioned Bug because um, one of the cast members in our show, Dan Anderson, was in Bug, and so he got to, you know, kind of make up for the pain of losing that. <laughs> but yeah, the parameters include rules like you have to set up um, your set in 10 minutes, and the, before you, you go on, they put all your elements of your set in a 10 by 10 box, and you have to take it out of the box and construct a set in 10 minutes. Then you have 60 minutes to perform your show. Then you have another 10 minutes to take down your set and put it back in that box. And if you go over by a second or any one of these you know, time periods, uh, you're disqualified. So it is a little bit of a pressure cooker, but that's part of the fun. It's part of the, the competition. 
And how long was the stage run? And did you have to shrink things down and tighten them a little bit to get them to that 60 minutes? Oh, that's an amazing question. So the stage run ran about 70 minutes. And so Jeremy, the artistic director at Stage Left, comes to me and says, well, we want to throw this play into competition, but we need to get it down to 60 minutes. And so first we talked about, okay, well, maybe there's sections we can take out. Maybe we'll just do the first act because it's a two-act play. Jeremy goes to the rights holders, and the rights holder says, uh, either you do the whole thing the way it's written or you find another play. So Jeremy sits down with me and says, what do you think? I said, well, let's give it a try. And so what I did is I sped up the dialogue, and then there are key sections where I had actors talk over each other, uh, which simulates uh, real-life banter and real-life exchanges. Um, Anyway, it ends up working, and uh, we got the play down to about 48 minutes, and then... 48 uh, minutes down from 70. Down from 70. Uh, in front of an audience, it usually ran about, you know, 50 minutes or so. Um, and um, and then we included a curtain call where the actors got a chance to bow, and we uh, made it under 60, which is great. That is great. And you mentioned that allowing the actors to step on some of the other actors' lines simulated natural dialogue. So do you feel as though this compression ended up in a more a better play or a more realistic play? For this collection of actors, I think it did contribute to a better play and better performances. Uh, it has a different energy. Um, there's an urgency with the competition production, you know, and audiences, you know, get grabbed by the throat in the beginning, and they really, um, you know, they don't escape from the throttle until the end. You know, so there, there's no... There's no let up in terms of the energy. Now, there's a lot of comedy, and so it's not this heavy experience, but in terms of just the intensity, uh, there's no let up. And that's a lot of that has to do with the pace of it now and the fact that um, it just moves so quickly and, you know, there's no time to catch a breath. And do you think the fact that so many of the things that it addresses are now so front of mind that judges maybe saw it in a new light or were more sympathetic to it? So we went to state, regional, nationals, and every stop there's adjudicators. And at every point, adjudicators did point out that the play uh, made them reflect on our times and the racism and police murders and police brutality and anti-black vigilantism. And so it does force people to reflect on, you know, what's happening uh, in our country. Um, And so I do think that the play is very sobering in that way, and I think that contributes to its success in that it makes people reflect on what's happening today. Yeah, you know, if this were to go up, say, against the importance of being earnest, <laughs> you're talking two very different plays, one of which I just think seems a little more urgent than the other. Urgent, timely. It forces people to self-reflect. You know, the play itself uh, is a protest play. It is a political play. Uh, but there's a lot of humor in it and a lot of poetry in it. And so I made a decision to lean into the poetry, lean into the humor, because the politics are there and they'll always be there. And so because I leaned into the humor and because I leaned into the entertainment value, it took the audience on this roller coaster. Um, and then at the end, there's this you know fantastic, uh, sad climax that was especially effective uh, because of the way we approached the play. 
Um, and so Danny Anderson and David and Matt, they all got the ensemble award, which is right. great. They won that at the national level, not the regional level. And David uh, won a separate monologue competition at ACFest. And so just an extraordinary uh, group of talented folks that I had the pleasure of working with. And on top of his directorial experience, Malcolm is a filmmaker and a playwright. But radio is a relatively new medium for him. And adapting Dead Mouse on Your Doorstep posed an interesting creative challenge. It was originally a stage play, a 10-minute play. Um, an early version was written about 20 years ago in grad school. And it's a play and a narrative that's really dear to me. Um, I've always enjoyed it. And so when the opportunity to uh, adapt it for the radio play came along, I just jumped at it. It was a great opportunity. And talk to me about that process of adapting it for the radio. Well, I actually worked with the director, Juan Moss, on that. And we went through it and uh, we talked about, you know, how to transition uh, the storytelling from something that's more visual to something that's completely, you know, for the radio. And so uh, we would change uh, kind of various things that were visual or that were previously on stage and we would work that into uh, the soundscape, um, whether there's sound effects or changing some of the dialogue, um, but it was a fun process. And talk to me about some of the specifics of that and these visual elements that you then thought, oh, we have to render these in an auditory fashion. Sure. So on stage, you have actors, or the actors are visible, and a large part of the actor's performance on stage involves gestures, facial expressions, things of that nature. So sometimes some of the storytelling can sink into the subtext uh, where things don't have to be expressed in the dialogue. Just the physical nature of the performance can do some of the heavy lifting in terms of the storytelling. And so with radio, obviously, um, that's not available to you, so you lean more into the dialogue, you lean into the special effects, uh, sound effects rather, and you kind of balance it out that way. And was there anything specifically that you wanted to accentuate that you started hearing rather than seeing and you thought, oh, this is going to be important for this scene? Well, you know, the cat, uh, Bob Marley, became more of a character, which was a lot of fun. And so Juan and I worked around that and developed more of a personality to that character. And in the radio play, you hear Bob Marley uh, communicate to the characters uh, in the scene. And so that in the earlier iterations, that wasn't the case. And so it's a lot of fun to develop that. And let's talk about some of the themes of this play. It's interesting that it's a cat. Uh, my takeaway from this was a tiger can't change its stripes. Am I giving a good approximation of what the theme is? To a certain extent. I mean, I didn't want to come out and say that because uh, it's too on the nose. But I do think I was playing around or grappling with that motif, yeah. Uh, there's that line at the end about walnuts and peanuts and honey roasted and all that um, that I think um, maybe says that in a different way. And why was it important to you to record on Juneteenth? Well, so the play itself you know, grapples with the legacy of civil rights and activism. Um, and my parents, both my parents, were organizers and activists labor organizers and 
um, anti-racism uh, activists. Um, so yes, yeah, so it was it was it was wonderful to be able to uh, kind of acknowledge that and to celebrate that on Juneteenth. And with Kim Berg's character, did you have anybody specific in mind as you were developing that character? Well, not exactly. Um, you know, the thing about Kim is that he has this great voice, and so it was a real pleasure to work with him, and it was really inspired casting. Um, but, you know, Juan uh, handled the casting, and so I'm really appreciative that he brought in Kim. And you sat in on the recording process. What were some things that surprised you? What were some things that maybe came as a, as a mild revelation when you were in that? I think just some of the choices that the actors made. They They seemed to be having a lot of fun with it, and um, you know, as a writer, you have these ideas and you can imagine it, but it's really special when an actor can just elevate the material to somewhere else that you didn't imagine. And so um, David Bullis, in particular, with, you know, his take on Pete um, and then also his take on uh, the cop in the jail, I think were a lot of fun for me in particular. And now that you've done this, do you think, you know what, I like writing for radio, I'd like to do more of it? Sure, I like writing for radio, and so if there are other opportunities, uh, I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> and how did you conceive of the play differently when it became, when it took on this auditory component? I don't know, it's a good question. Um, I don't know if I conceived of it differently, but I think that because it's auditory experience, it just had a new... Uh, life to it that uh, maybe it doesn't have on stage. And uh, a lot of it is left up to the listener's imagination. And Juan, the director, um, did a great job just, you know, kind of with all the um, audio effects and uh, simulating space and depth with uh, kind of the audio elements. And what it does is that it opens up the play to the listener's imagination, which I think is a lot of fun. And is there anything else that you wanted to add that you would hope that the audience takes away or the listener takes away when hearing this? Is there any element that you put in there that you thought, I hope somebody gets this? Well, I think, you know, I'm having a lot of fun with it. It's a comedy, but it's also a love letter to kind of an older generation of activists, um, who were on the front lines, who uh, were in the streets organizing. And so the character of Irv represents my parents and the generation before my parents who were in Birmingham and, you know, uh, stood shoulder to shoulder with uh, Cesar Chavez. And so it's a love letter to them. And, you know, you do a lot of film work as well. Did this exercise different creative muscles? Yeah, you know, I think that, you know, one of the more underrated or underappreciated aspects of cinema are the sound elements. I mean, people focus so much on, oh, that's a cool shot or that's a cool special effect, visual effect. But sound, I, I think, is a major part of storytelling when it comes to cinema. And so uh, getting to focus on that was a real pleasure for me. And again, soundscapes, you know, open up a world um, where the audience can, you know, use their imagination, you know, uh, as part of the storytelling. Well, Malcolm, thank you so much for coming in and, uh, and talking about Dead Mouse on Your Doorstep. Thanks, E.J. 
That was filmmaker and playwright Malcolm Pellis talking about Dead Mouse on Your Doorstep. This has been Radio Play Collab, a creative partnership between Spokane Public Radio, Purple Crayon Pictures, and Spokane Playwrights Laboratory. The Radio Play Collab theme song was written by Tanya Ballman. On behalf of Spokane Public Radio, I've been your host and producer, E.J. Ionelli. This season of Radio Play Collab received funding from a Spokane Arts Grant Award. For more information on Saga, visit spokanearts.org. Support for Radio Play Collab also comes from The Inlander, a local independent weekly newspaper since 1993. New issues are out every Thursday and available regionally. The Inlander is also updated daily on inlander.com.